Support for Alleist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Alleist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, after multiple arrests, allegations of grooming, and felony burglary charges, why is Warner Brothers still standing by Ezra Miller? Plus, a fascinating new documentary breaks down the ways that women in film are objectified through shot design. Filmmaker Nina Mankus is the director of Brainwashed Sex Camera Power. The impact on a gut level, the way these shots affect us, especially when they're reproduced, 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 is very profound, very deep, and very damaging. But first, here's my retake for this week. I have a friend who is obsessed with true crime stories, and I asked her for her take on this show. Power tools going all hours of the night. screaming coming from your apartment. That's Netflix's global hit Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. I tried to watch the pilot and couldn't do it, my friend told me. He freaks me out too much. And in the back of my mind was the niggling thought that this is glorifying him in some way. Well, she's one of the very few who decided not to watch Dahmer. Soon after its debut on September 21st, just a month ago, the 10-part series became Netflix's second most popular English language series ever, trailing only the fourth season of Stranger Things. So it is indisputable that Dahmer is a financial winner, but whether Dahmer is a moral winner, that is quite another question. Created by Ryan Murphy, whose credits include American Horror Story and American Crime Story, Dahmer was released with no material marketing or publicity, either because Netflix wasn't worried about the series or because it worried too much. Yet even without any promotion, Dahmer immediately attracted outsized attention. Chief among the criticisms is that Dahmer is far more invested in the perpetrator and his childhood than his victims. In fact, relatives of some of Dahmer's victims have attacked the series for its graphic recreations of his murders, 17 total, and what Dahmer did with their bodies, including dismemberment and cannibalism. In the sixth episode, the show spends more time than usual on victim Tony Hughes, who was Dahmer's 12th target. But whatever fleeting compassion is granted to Hughes is quickly undone by the episode's final frames. That's Dahmer sautéing what appears to be Hughes's liver. Was that really necessary to tell the story? This is somebody's child, after all. At the same time, Dahmer seeks to condemn the prurient media attention that his crime sparked. As critic Jen Cheney writes in her Dahmer review on Vulture, you don't get credit for lamenting the existence of a circus when you happen to be the ringmaster. True crime stories can play a vital role. They can expose possible miscarriages of justice, illustrate deeper problems in society, and can use fiction to explore more important truths. 
Or they can do what Dahmer does, which is what? Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. When it comes to measuring the representation of women in film, the most well-known benchmark is called the Bechdel test. It was created by cartoonist Alison Bechdel. It's pretty simple. Does a movie have at least two female characters who talk to each other about something other than a man? If it does, it passes. The new documentary, Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power, asks audiences to look a little bit deeper. In it, director Nina Mankus breaks down the ways that women are objectified through shot design. What's the point of view of a shot? Who's the subject and who's the object? How is it framed? Are the women broken down into body parts? How about camera movement? Who gets the slow pans over their bodies? And lighting? Who's lit to hide any flaws? The documentary grew out of a talk that Mankis used to give to her film students about how the visual language of film is gendered, how it became that way, and why it matters. When I talked with Mankis after Brainwash premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this year, we started off by discussing the idea of the male gaze. It was first coined by film theorist Laura Mulvey in the 1970s. I think for a lot of people, the idea of male gaze seems abstract and academic. It's like some fancy film school word. Exactly. So how much of your focus on this issue is intended to demystify it and make it understandable so that then students and filmmakers alike can spot it and assess it? Yeah, that's that's exactly precise. I mean, my point in showing my students and my point in in the talk was precisely that, to make it just absolutely technical, absolutely clear, absolutely, to be honest, irrefutable, and to a certain extent, simple, but at the on the other side, not simple, because the fact that it's been reproduced over genres, over decades, over male directors, over female directors, it's it, it it really speaks, although simple, it speaks to things that are not simple deep inside. Well, I'm going to pick up on that idea because this visual subjugation of women and what I will call, as you discuss in your film, the no means yes romantic rape scene is not limited to filmmakers that I would call exploitative. Harmony Corinne or Vincent Gallo. It's part of the work of Alfred Hitchcock, Martin Scorsese, Ridley Scott, Spike Lee, George Roy Hill and Butch Cassidy, and then female directors like Patty Jenkins and Sofia Coppola. Patty Jenkins and Sofia Coppola are not indulging in the no means yes romantic rape scene, but they are kind of mirroring this male gaze, this subjugation of women visually. Is that just a reflexive way that that, that people just shoot, that they don't know better, or it's just how it's done? Um, I can say that having gone to hundreds of thousands of films over the years and seeing this kind of shot design reproduced, 
I would say it might have been an unconscious choice. It was deliberate, but maybe it wasn't 100% thought through in terms of the implications. I I don't know what the decision-making process was. I mean, you can also say, well, there are many people who say, well, you know, Sofia Coppola was commenting on the male gaze or or Godard was commenting on the male gaze or Titan, opening scene of Titan was commenting on the male gaze. You know, yes, you you could argue that. But my argument is that whether they were commenting or not, the impact on a gut level, the way these shots affect us, especially when they're reproduced, 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 is very profound, very deep, and very damaging. I want to come back to that issue about the effects of these kinds of visual depictions. You talk about how women's bodies are often shown in fragmented pieces or the camera kind of leeringly glides over their bodies, and they also are always shot to be what we'll call beautiful. But how does that affect an audience? Does it contribute to, like, Naomi Wolf's idea of the beauty myth and how women see themselves and about insecurity, about body types and self-hatred and those kinds of things, do you think? Of course it does. Um, We know that it affects people. There's been extensive research done showing that it affects people. I mean, there's no way to utterly prove, prove, prove. But, you know, let's put it this way. They do know that, you know, there's this uh, one of our interviewees, Sandra DeCastro Buffington, talked about the the research that has shown that when you're in this altered state of, of a cinema space, there's a thing that happens to your brain called transportation if you get into a movie. And it, it you have the highest knowledge gain and the highest amount of effect on your behavior and your intents. The effects of cinema on our psyches is something that has actually been scientifically documented. So, you know, does it have an impact that we're always seeing, you know, women who are sort of flawlessly beautiful and always age 25? You know, of course it does. Of course it does. How could it not? And I think one of the things that you're really getting at is that we can look at a movie and see that you know, female characters may not have as much dialogue as a man. They may not have as much agency as a man. They might need a man to do a certain thing that they're generally not nearly as powerful as their male male counterparts. But you're arguing, strip out all the dialogue. Don't even focus on what people are saying or what their jobs are. Just look at the movie with the sound off, and that will tell you pretty much what you need to know. Um, Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is that all that other stuff is not unimportant. But here's another level. It's a bit more of a meta level. And, you know, you you said sound off, but we do have a couple of examples in the film that sound itself reinforces these kind of imbalances in power. You know, in Brainwash, there's a scene where we break down the raging bull scene where the main character is on the left side of the pool. Robert De Niro is on the left side of the pool. And the object of his gaze is way, way far away from him. And we see her mouth moving. We can't hear her, which you figure makes sense because she's far away. And we're in Robert De Niro's point of view. Surprise, surprise. But it turns out that there are these two dudes sitting right next to Vicky and we can hear them perfectly well. So so how does that infiltrate your consciousness? When you're watching that scene, do you feel like I'm being silenced as a woman? I mean, you may, depending on how tuned in you are to yourself, 
<laughs> you may directly feel it. You may directly feel like, oh, I better shut up. Yeah, this is, I mean, you do basically like a Zapruder-esque deconstruction of the scene where we know geometrically that there's no way that Robert De Niro's character couldn't hear the woman because she's as far away as the men and yet she is silenced. One of the things I, I'm really struck by is the kind of the reflexive nature of how we, meaning we or Hollywood, tell stories. I was reading a script the other day written by a female friend of mine, and she's very conscious of how women are portrayed on screen. And yet every single female character was described by appearance. Well, none of the men were. And I, oh, called, wow. her, I called her out and she apologized and basically said, oh, my God, it was just automatic. Exactly. Is that part of maybe what the end goal of this film might be? Like, think about it. It's not automatic. Yes, you said it perfectly. You know, the end goal of my film is not to be a police officer arresting people who do body pans down women's bodies or, or you know, outlawing, God forbid, a film like Vertigo, which is an amazing film. And yet, of course, Kim Novak is the silent, mysterious object of desire. You know, these some of, these, some of the films in Brainwash are great, great films that I love. Not all, but many. So, no, we don't want to police anybody and we don't want to cancel any films. What we want to do is raise awareness, raise consciousness. And then you do what you want with that. You also talk about some recent work uh, you find is rewarding. I think you talk about Chloe Zhao's film, Nomadland. And you talk about Anna Lily Amapur's Girl Walks Home at Night. Now, those are, I will say, exceptions to the rule. But the way that those filmmakers are able to tell very good stories. I mean, Chloe Zhao won the Oscar for Nomadland. Does that give you some hope that there is a way for these movies to be told and be successful critically, maybe not blockbusters, but that they can be recognized as great work and not adhere to the conventions of what great work is supposed to look like? Yes, I think um, I think we have an interviewee in the film, Maya Montañez Smuckler, who says very rightly that women have been making these films that go against the grain um, for many generations. Well, at the birth of cinema, no less. At the birth of cinema, no less. So we have women who've been doing it, but the, the change that's happened recently, you know, very recently, is that a film like, let's say, Nomadland that stars a 60-year-old woman who's definitely not the sex object, you know, <laughs> you know, in her underwear, right? That, that a film like that goes to the top, that, that a film like Promising Young Woman, which is directly addressing rape culture, goes to the top, you know, it's nominated. So this is what's new. It's not new that women have been making films that express our experience. The other thing that's really important to remember is that you know, are there less films made by women that you can look back in history on? Absolutely, because we were completely shut out. We were shut out of funding. We were shut out of distribution. We were shut out of everything. So you have to dig to find these gems. But when you find them, they're fantastic. I mean, look at look at Wanda by Barbara Lode in 1970. It's a, the entire film is about this experience. What does it mean to be a woman who is like pushed into this kind of sex object position and how it really feels? You know, my own films are a lot about that, too. So 
fil- these films have been made, but you know, the average person going to the USC film school, I don't know now, but certainly when I was there, you know, was told to watch Stagecoach five times to learn how to make a movie. You know, nobody said watch Wanda. I don't I never heard Wanda mentioned, you know, to any student in the entire production uh, department, you know. Nina, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That was filmmaker Nina Mankus. Her documentary Brainwashed Sex Camera Power is in theaters now. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. This week, we talked about the troubled actor Ezra Miller and why Warner Brothers is still moving ahead with The Flash, which Miller is starring in. But first, we caught up about the Middleburg Film Festival. So last week, you said that you were on your way to the Middleburg Film Festival in Virginia. Anything that you watched there that you'd like to recommend? Uh, A lot of things. There's a German-language version of All Quiet on the Western Front that I would highly recommend. Noah Baumbach has adapted Don DeLillo's novel White Noise. Also, I like that a lot. There's a documentary called Descendant documentary about finding the wreckage of the last known slave ship to arrive in the United States. Uh, there's a sequel to Knives Out that is delightful. It's called Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Uh, and then a thriller called Nanny about a Senegalese woman who is a nanny to a white couple and bad things happen inside the house. Mm. Well, thanks so much for those recommendations from the Middleburg Film Fest. Let's turn to something uh, a little more serious now, and that is about how Hollywood deals with people who have been accused or convicted of a crime, or they might just be a bad person, I guess, and whether the movie business might excuse some of this behavior when in almost any other business, such people would be immediately shown the door. Yeah. Are you suggesting Hollywood might have double standards? Um, I'm shocked. Uh, Yes. So let's start with bad people, not criminals. And yes, the movie business has a terrible history in that regard. Let's talk about Scott Rudin. I mean, for years, everybody knew that the producer was a screaming maniac, that he threw things at his staff, but he was successful. He made some really good movies and won awards. So the industry basically looked the other way. And it was not until Tatiana Siegel chronicled in very explicit detail some of his worst abuses last April in The Hollywood Reporter that he was cast out of town. But there are plenty of people who also have bad reputations that continue to work, unlike Rudin, Mel Gibson, I'd say actor Morgan Freeman. You should Google CNN's story on him from four years ago. Talk show host James Corden, who was briefly expelled from a fancy New York restaurant for abusing the servers. Uh, And then there are actors like Ezra Miller. What's the problem with Ezra Miller? Well, it's problems, plural. Uh, Merle Miller's pronouns are they and them, and they have been in a lot of legal trouble. Earlier this week, they pleaded not guilty to felony burglary charges in Vermont. And earlier this year, Miller was arrested in Hawaii, first for disorderly conduct and harassment, and then not a month later, 
arrested for second-degree assault. There are other incidents involving restraining orders, allegations of sexual abuse, and Miller's choking a woman in a bar. Miller pleaded no contest to the assault charge, and the harassment charge was dismissed. Miller has said they have, quote, complex mental health issues, unquote. And how has this affected their acting career? Uh, Not immediately any impact. Uh, Next June, Miller stars in this, the movie version of The Flash. You change the future. And you change the past. So that's coming out uh, next June. And Warner Brothers has not said anything about Miller and the $200 million production, which is completed filming. So it's not as if the studio can recast the part, which the studio did with Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. You might recall that movie was going to star Johnny Depp, but a week into filming as details of his, I don't know if we call it a relationship with Amber Heard. I don't know what you would call that. Uh, But as details became public, Warner Brothers decided to recast Johnny Depp's part, brought in the actor Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, The studio reportedly has commissioned a screenplay for a Flash sequel. Uh, We don't know if that's going to happen or if it will star Miller. It's important to point out that even if they did not contest the assault charge, Miller has not been convicted of any crime so far. Interesting. Miller's also in the Fantastic Beasts movies, playing Credence Barebone and Aurelius Dumbledore. So we've got a couple of um, people with uh, behavior issues connected with that film franchise. So even if Warner Brothers isn't talking, John, what are other people saying? Well, Issa Rae, who created and started the series Insecure, has some thoughts. She said in an interview with Elle magazine that came out about a week ago, uh, this is what she said. I'm quoting Issa Rae now. The stuff that's happening with Ezra Miller is to me a microcosm of Hollywood. There's this person who's a repeat offender who's been behaving atrociously and as opposed to shutting them down and shutting the production down, there's an effort to say Save the movie and them. That is a clear example of the lengths that Hollywood will go to to save itself and to protect offenders. Hmm. Not any big news that seems like that has always been the case where there have been enablers who've, you know, facilitated the bad behavior of stars, whether they be in film, television or music, in order to keep the creative pipeline open. So it's it is it's troubling. KPCC's arts and entertainment reporter, John Horn, host of the Retake podcast. Thanks so much for being on Morning Edition. My pleasure, as always. You know that, Suzanne. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brara, with production assistance this week from Tyler Wayne. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.